Well, let's get started. I don't, I, Paula, I don't know if it's on. Let's get started then. Um, it's a pleasure. It's a it's a pleasure for me to um, uh, welcome everyone to the 37th uh, David B. Kaner uh, Memorial Lecture. Uh, I'd first like to introduce uh, Mrs. Marjorie Long, David Kaner's widow, um, who has been a strong supporter um, of the Kaner Lecture over the last 37 years. Marjorie's daughter Jamie also is here with us um, uh, today for this uh, lectureship. Um, for a little background on the lectureship, um, it was established at Dartmouth Medical School um, in 1974 in memory of David Kaner by his loving family and friends. The uh, David B. Kaner Memorial Lecture Fund brings distinguished guest lecturers in the fields of surgery and oncology to the medical school each year. David uh, graduated summa cum laude from the University of Michigan and then received his MD degree from uh, Wayne State Medical School and then began a surgical internship here at uh, Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital in 1972. Um, in October of 73, David was diagnosed with chronic myelogenous leukemia, which he valiantly fought for the next 10 months. During this period, he was accepted into the ophthalmologic residency program at the Mayo Clinic, where he planned to begin um, uh, training after completing his surgery training here. However, after a short remission, David died in August of 1974. By all standards, David's life of 30 years was a tragically short one, and yet he lived each day to the fullest. His gentle manner, concern for others, and commitment to his profession were felt by all whose lives he touched. And Dartmouth Medical School is honored um, to have this memorial lecture, lectureship in tribute to his memory. I'd now like to introduce uh, Dr. Monica Bertagnoli, our, our keener lecturer this year. Um, uh, Dr. Bertagnoli is a very busy woman. And uh, when I first I thought of inviting her here, I said, oh, Monica might not be able to come. But then I noticed that it was on St. Patrick's Day. And if any of you noticed, Dr. Bertagnoli is extremely Italian, right? So, it was, so I figured everyone, all the Italians want to get out of Boston when the Irish are parading through the streets all day. So, so fortunately, Monica came up uh, to give the lecture today. So when Monica was uh, a freshman walking around the engineering quadrangle at, at Princeton, I, I'm sure she didn't realize that she'd be one day leading one of the uh, major clinical oncology groups uh, in the country and running clinical trials, but that's what she's doing. So after, after graduating from Princeton, Monica attended the University of Utah Medical School and then did her surgery residency at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, she, after being on staff in, at Cornell in New York for a few years, she then returned to the Brigham and has been on the faculty of the Brigham for the last 15 years, where she's uh, runs the Division of Surgical Oncology and is a professor of, medical, uh, professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. Uh, Monica remains clinically active. She takes care of patients with uh, familial adenomatous polyposis and operates on people with these big liposarcomas in their retroperitoneum, so they're challenging. She still does lots of challenging uh, operative cases. Um, her research has functioned, has um, focused on the function of the APC gene in, uh, in colorectal neoplasia. Um, she was, um, she showed in animal models that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs could uh, prevent um, the formation of uh, colonic uh, cancer. 
And then that led her to lead a, a very large clinical trial that many are familiar with that uh, showed that uh, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug celecoxib was able to prevent the formation of colonic adenomas. Monica's also been very um, uh, active in clinical trials. She has uh, was worked on the on GI group in the CALGB for many years. Um, and then when um, the uh, CLGB and, and ACASOG and the NC North, North Central um, Treatment Group joined together to, to form the Alliance uh, for Clinical Trials in Oncology, Monica was asked to lead that group, which she's um, been done, done now for the last uh, three years. And uh, as I learned last night, not only does this group uh, do uh, or conduct clinical studies um, that are done in conjunction with the NCI, but she's also formed a, a corporation called the Alliance Foundation Trials, which um, acts as a resource to, to conduct clinical trials that, uh, with uh, pharmaceutical companies. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to uh, uh, have Monica Bertagnoli be here today. Thank you very much, Rick. Can you all hear me? Is that okay? Um, I, first of all, I, I want to just say how, how honored I am to be this year's Caner Lecture. Um, you know, uh, uh, Marjorie sent me a beautiful note describing what he meant to his family and to this institution, and it's very, very special to me. It will go in my scrapbook as something I will treasure. And it's also very clear, having just met her very briefly, that uh, one of the other things that Dr. Kaner uh, did was he chose a spouse who was equal to him in both spirit and generosity. So thank you very much for this great honor. Um, I have great affection for Dartmouth. Um, I. Uh, I was thinking last night, you know, what was the first time I ever thought about this institution? Because it's prominently, it's been a part of my career um, from the beginning. And, and I actually remembered when I was 18 years old, um, in the summer before I head off to Princeton, I remember being at a family wedding and dancing with this very handsome Dartmouth sophomore <laughs> and thinking, you know, maybe I didn't make such a wise choice of my college institution after all. That was the first time I ever thought about Dartmouth. And, you know, over the years, I've had the great honor of collaborating with so many people uh, in this group. Um, you know, Tom Colaccio and Rick Barth from the, from the surgery department, Mike Sporn in our work in chemo prevention, and now, you know, most, most often, you know, literally every, every month he hears from me, Constantine. Um, and uh, his work through the cooperative groups and, and the clinical trials. So uh, I'm really fortunate to have benefited from a long association with Dartmouth. Well, today I'm going to talk to you about, uh, this is the topic, precision medicine for cancer patients, what we can do to get there and achieve the promise of this very high goal. And I do not have any disclosures I need to, to explain to you. Um, and I guess I need to start with what do we mean by precision medicine, because these buzzwords come and go, and it's very important to uh, structure what we mean by them. And, uh, you know, I guess bluntly, we mean better outcomes for more specific treatments. Well, that's not very specific. Um, when we think about cancer and some of the things that we have tried to do, and let's go back 
to the year before, unfortunately, Dr. Kaner died of his um, disease. And that, I guess, is one example of where a disease uniformly treated um, became subsetted into two different populations. That was the first description um, from Roswell Park that AML karyotype could predict a chemotherapy response. Just a couple prominent examples of, of what's, what's happened. In 78, Stanley Cohn and the Vanderbilt Group identified the epidermal growth factor receptor, and it wasn't until 25 years later that we developed a, that there was approval for a specific targeted agent able to alter disease based on that uh, genotype. Got a little better, uh, 82 to 86, Bob Weinberg, Axel Ulrich, and, and Lisa Cousins identified HER2 new, and 15 years until we saw trastuzumab approved as a targeted agent for that molecular abnormality. And those were the slow days. Things are now accelerating very rapidly. In 2008, we had the first normal tumor genome sequenced. And now in 2014, last year, we had sequencing following, falling below the $1,000 uh, level per genome. The Institute of Medicine two years ago uh, took an, a, a stab at defining this buzzword of what precision medicine really means. And they convened a consensus panel, not just oncologists, but people from out across medicine. It's, you can find this on the IOM website. It's, it's an interesting, interesting um, manuscript. It's, talks about, it tries to define what do we mean by precision medicine and how are we going to get there. And here's the definition out of the IOM consensus report. It refers to the tailoring of medical treatment to the individual characteristics of each patient. Well, we've been doing that forever, I hope. But it requires the ability to classify individuals into subpopulations that differ in biology and clinical behavior. Well, we've also been doing that for many, many decades. The idea is that preventive or therapeutic interventions can then be concentrated on those who will benefit, sparing toxicity for those who won't. We've been trying to do that for an awfully long time, too. What is different about what we mean by precision medicine? I think the buzzword means that it responds to the rise of data-intensive biology, advances in information technology that allow us to understand complexity at a level we've never been able to before, and also changes in healthcare delivery. Finding the patient in the farthest reach of our nation or our world that can benefit from a particular um, therapeutic. And finally, what we mean by precision medicine is that it utilizes molecular information to improve the diagnosis and treatment of disease. So a working definition. What about cancer precision medicine? A few, a few thoughts. We all know cancer, every cancer patient is unique. Um, we do our best to divide them into categories that allow us to treat them well, but every, cancer, every patient responds differently. We also have many, many recently developed drugs that target discrete molecular aberrations. And consequently, we believe that these drugs will only be active in a subset of our current populations. We also now have a drug approval process that involves companion diagnostics. So no longer are we developing a drug for a non-selected patient population. We are co-developing both the diagnostic and the drug at the same time. 
And we now have molecular techniques that allow biomarkers to be identified in a prospectively driven fashion instead of through, through retrospective analysis of large data sets. And this is the subject of my talk today, how we are trying to achieve this. So we can say, I believe, that the long sought after goal where therapeutic choice is guided by a specific biomarker code is here, and you just have to go to the web to find all kinds of, of information, conferences, uh, work out there throughout the field of medicine to try to, to see this to reality. So where are we with cancer? The, where are we today with, with precision medicine and oncology? Well. Germline and somatic genotyping is now broadly available. This is a, a, a often used slide showing Moore's Law, showing the, the uh, diffusion of technology. And you can see that our ability to genotype for less cost has far outstripped anything that Moore's Law could ever predict. And targeted the pharmaceutical industry has just driven by biology and a great deal of, of um, progress in the field of tumor biology has now a vast array of particularly targeted therapeutics. And you can see the main categories here. They range from the signal transduction inhibitors to the now new cellular immunotherapies and cancer vaccines. So there's a very broad list now of agents that we can say are targeted toward a particular um, aspect of tumor biology. My there's lots of places you can go to date out there. My Cancer Genome is a kind of a nice website that the Vanderbilt group puts forward. And I looked at this back in November, and there were over 214 agents with names, not just pharmaceutical company numbers out there, that could be listed there as targeted agents. And they target a variety of processes in tumor biology. This is an article that was in Cancer Discovery just last week, last month, the group at Sage BioNetworks just looked at mutations. They didn't look at expression. They didn't look at amplification. They didn't look at fusions. Just trying to get their arms around the magnitude of the, of the problem we're dealing with here. They just looked at mutations. And they, I think you can see here, they, found, they looked for gene variant drug associations, possible gene variants for which there was a drug that could target that. And they found out there are currently available 750 of those gene drug associations. Um, most of them were in lung cancer. You see lung, melanoma, colorectal. And they classified them toward which diseases these variants arose in. And then looked at another way. They, they reported the genes with the largest number of associations. So there's a lot of, of drugs for EGFR. There's a lot of drugs for BRAF and on down. 130 genes with multiple drugs, and then drugs with the largest number of associations. So it looks like the MEK inhibitors, the EGFR inhibitors, PI3 kinase, and, and the, the uh, kit tyrosine kinases are lots of drug development in those areas. And again, this is just mutations, somatic mutations of genes. Doesn't it count for anything else we have out there in epigenetics and all the other things we know are targetable? And when they classified this and looked, again, purely based on the mutations, with that wealth of what is out there, 750 possible combinations, this is the list of truly, quote, actionable results based on the strictest criteria that have met FDA approval. 
um, for mutations only. And you see them here. We know these. We know these very well. These agents have come up over the last five to ten years. Um, as I said, it's a partial list because it doesn't include things like crizotinib for the outfusions. But um, compared to the vast number of possibilities, it's a very, very tiny list. That's a shame. So a couple of interesting stories, and, and um, these are com most many of you will know these stories well, but they give great examples. This is, these are some slides that were shared with me by Lou Stout, uh, head of the Genome Center at the NCI now. Uh, really striking example of what I'm talking about, clear cell carcinoma. This is the TCGA data. It basically says that clear cell, carcin clear cell renal carcinoma has prominent activation of PI3 kinase pathway. Uh, there was a study uh, done at Memorial that looked at the mTOR inhibitor Evolimus and showed that there was an excellent response in, renal, in a subset of renal cell carcinoma to this, uh, this uh, PI3 kinase pathway inhibitor. But there was a patient, oops, sorry. There's a patient at Memorial that had this unbelievably exceptional response, 73-year-old gentleman with metastatic bladder cancer. Um, you can see his metastatic disease within the retroperitoneum here. He, Pre-treatment, he had a complete response to Everlimus. Um, and then at the time of this publication, which was in 2012, he remained on drug with no evidence of disease, 24 months, unheard of. Um, the group at Memorial did a whole genome sequencing and found that this patient had a frameship mutation in tubular sclerosis 1 gene. This, this protein is known to be a secondary suppressor of the mTOR uh, signaling complex, and when they looked at the patients at Memorial that were on the trial, whether they looked at responders versus non-responders, and the blue were the cases that had the tubular sclerosis mutation, and the green were the ones that did not. And you can read this waterfall plot very easily, showing that the patients who responded overwhelmingly had the presence of this secondary mutation, which converted greater, um, greater responsiveness to this drug. Talk about trying to find a needle in a haystack. Yet for this individual with metastatic clear cell carcinoma, it was absolutely life-saving and transforming. And this is the problem that we have to unravel. Here's another one, a little bit different version of the issue. Um, endometrial carcinoma, we know from uh, medical school that there are, there, there are three types of histology, endometrioid, mixed, and serous, and we've been basing all of our treatments and treatment planning based on the basic histology. Well, TCGA showed that they could categorize uh, um, endometrial carcinoma into four types, pole, ultramutated, MSI, copy number low, and copy number high, and that it didn't really fit histology that the histology of the endometroid, which is known to have a different biology, a different, different clinical course, was largely these, um, these three categories. But then the, there were some of these interspersed in the hot copy number high. So what has the answer? Can you get a better characterization of response out of looking at the genome than you can out of the histology? And this appears to be the case. Now, this is kind of small, but you can see there was a retrospective study that then went back to a large data set of the, of the 
serous subtype of, of endometrial carcinoma and showed that the hypermutated, incredibly well responders, basically all cured by surgery. Um, the next two subsets, which um, were not just, which would have uniformly been treated um, as the endometrioid subtype before, um, now really have a different level of response. And then finally, the bad actors are the ones that are copy number high. And so now, treatment for this cancer is now oops, not, not done uh, yet, prospect, not validated according to genotype, but the research that's underway to confirm this is to say, do these, this population genomically characterized, should they be treated with surgery only? Perhaps those in the middle with adjuvant radiotherapy and or with or without perhaps chemotherapy. So now the trials are in progress to decide should these be treated with conventional therapy in a different manner based on their genomic type. So what do we need to be able to move the field forward and not be just looking for our keys underneath the lamppost? Um, there's a couple requirements that, to make this vision really, really achievable. We need to have effective therapeutics with high efficacy and low toxicity, and many of those are coming on board, although we're, the toxicity remains an issue. We need validated biomarkers, both diagnostic, as I gave you the example of the endometrial carcinoma, but also prognostic and predictive. We need a learning healthcare system. We need to learn from every single patient because every single patient's going to be a one-off. And just to say we're going to do all of this in the context of prospective randomized trials is ridiculous. That will limit us um, greatly, and we, we cannot simply do that. And we need a public-private partnership for healthcare research and delivery. And so at a high level, um, this particular aspect is something that we're working very hard with, with the IOM, uh, with ASCO, with AACR and with other uh, large organizations to try to achieve. What are we good at right now? Right now, we're very, very good at genotyping. As I said, we've exceeded Moore's law um, several fold. We're good at early drug discovery, and we're good at discovery science. Um, we've built up an infrastructure um, and technology that allow us to do that. We are not so good at getting those results to the patients. We're not so good at analysis of the uh, just tremendous amounts of data. We're not good at capturing and learning from every patient. And we're not so good at clinical validation of the wonderful results that we see in the, you know, science, nature, cancer discovery week after week after week. We're not so good at getting those interesting results all the way down the path to the patients who need them. And so, you know, in the scope of this brief talk, I'm going to try to address three particular challenges that I know we can do something about that might be able to um, help us get where we need to be. So I'm going to talk about three things. Um, genotyping in the clinical setting, something that is now possible and fairly widely applied. Managing big data and clinical trials designs. So first starting genotyping in the clinical setting. Um, about five years ago, five, six years ago, a donor um, gave the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute $17 million with the goal of putting enterprise-level genotyping in the 
in the clinical setting, making that a reality. And the donor's um, specification was it had to be offered to every single patient um, that came to the Dana-Farber. So that's what we've been doing. And that project known as Profile has been now fully operational for about two and a half years. And this is what happens. Informed consent for molecular testing is obtained. There's a clinician order for testing because, as I showed you before, some of these things are actually actionable and we can actually use to direct patient care. We obtain the tissue, which can either be a surgical specimen or something that comes from, you know, another institution even. We don't need to get fresh tissue or, or new tissue. Genomic analysis is done in the research environment because it's a research protocol. Um, and we collect minimal, but, but getting, getting better now that we have electronic health record capabilities that we are utilizing to the fullest extent possible, longitudinal follow-up of treatment and outcomes, and a callback program so that we can let people know if we find something new about that, their particular condition. We also do targeted somatic variant testing in a CLIA lab so that we can actually use it clinically when we need to. We have a molecular tumor board we do, that can do data capture and annotation and can report back to clinicians. And we make treatment decisions whenever possible based on this genotyping. And then the most important thing, which I think we all increasingly need to, to, to connect these dots, is all of the data from the clinical arm of what we're doing gets fed back to the research, research um, database. So this is what happens to the molecular tumor board. Everybody's doing this, so this should be very familiar to you. A report goes back to the clinician, and we can say that you, we come up with alterations that are tier one, tier two, and tier three. And tier one says, there might be really something here you need to treat the patient with. It's part of a validated list. Tier two, maybe, and tier three is research only. And we get many, many, we have a big molecular tumor board. Everybody serves, serves a sentence there. It's, it's a big challenge. Um, actually, is there, we get questions all the time, is this an actionable oncogene mutation or, a, or is it a non-validated variant? Is it a, if it's actionable in one histology, should we use it in another? And is there a clinical trial for someone with this particular um, aberration? And so here's an example of a, of a pro profile I got back on one of my own patients. And um, you can see here that it's a patient with colorectal cancer, 66-year-old woman. And she had two of the classic APC gene mutations indicating that she had a, uh, this was a, a sporadic colon cancer. But she had some interesting things here. So that's tier one. It's, it's not a predictive biomarker. It's a, it's diagnostic of, of an APC mutated colon cancer. Um, and then in the tier two variants, there was another APC mutation that we really don't know the meaning of. Oh, I'm sorry. This is I1307K, the Ashkenazi Jewish um, susceptibility mutation. Um, currently not actionable, but a susceptibility mutant. There's a BCL2 mutation. PMS2 is a mismatch repair protein, kind of interesting, P53. Not really much we're going to do with any of this. And then in tier three now, here's an herb B2 mutation for which in 50% of 121 reads, very high prevalence of that mutation. And we now have targeted agents. Should we treat this patient with neratinib if she develops um, metastatic colon cancer that's unresponsive to first-line therapy? This is the kind of stuff we now get day in and day out 
in the molecular tumor board, and we have to figure out how to learn from it and do the right thing. So here's the old way to do it and one way to do it and something we absolutely have to do. It's the slow and hard way. So we have a marker, and we determine the frequency in some disease subtype. We look for functional studies. CRISPR, we can move anything in and out of anywhere now with CRISPR technology, and we find out if it's, if it's got some preclinical uh, significance. We look for retrospective cohorts and try to validate this as something that's reasonable, like we did with the endometrial carcinomas. And then we go to a biomarker-driven trial if we possibly can that will prove that this marker can direct therapy in a better way. That's the slow and very reliable um, and not always successful way of getting things done. So now let me leave that for a minute. That's genotyping in the clinical center, its clinical setting and where it's taking us, and talk a little bit, very briefly, about big data. Because when people talk about precision medicine, um, often you hear you can't do precision medicine without big data, understanding these enormous data sets we're getting out of out of our profiling. Um, we now know that none of our cancers are simple diseases anymore. This was from 2013, it's Levi Garraway in 2013. You can put a lot more slices in these pies in 2015. So we're all dealing with many different diseases that have different possibilities. Um, and then on top of this, what's led to those little subsets are by and large, enormous data sets of profiling that's been done on these tumors. You know, when we, we look at the DNA level, um, we look at the RNA level. This was, again, in 2013 review. We had existing technologies. I like showing the older one because these were the existing technologies in 2013 and these were the emerging ones. These emerging ones are now old hat. You know, we do ChIP-seq, RNA-seq routinely uh, in the research setting on on so many of our tumors. Get these enormous data sets, what do we do with them? I wish I knew the answer. Um, this is something that I caught my eye in science not too long ago. Just basically starting to address the problem. Computational biology, understanding the patterns that are seen in these incredibly complex data sets and how they correlate with clinical outcomes. Is, not, is something that, you know, I'm not going to address further in this talk, but clearly is an absolutely essential field that I think um, all of us understand that we need and need to foster in the next generation coming up. I'm really happy to say that Harvard has now finally gotten over its uh, quadrangle politics and now has a new, um, a new department of computational biology that is leading the way in this. And um, I'm sure in many... We're not the first because many other institutions are following there. And so we are looking to partner on the clinical end who knows what happens to patients, partner with this new emerging science so that we don't miss the opportunities that, that we, we believe will emerge from it. So now I'm going to go on to something that I do know a little bit about um, and uh, can talk about in, in real time what we're, what we're trying to do. And this has to do with clinical trials designs that might meet the need uh, to interrogate what we understand in the new biology. The old drug development strategy, um, which we still fall back on, um, it's still relevant in many situations, is get together a study cohort that's, that's supposed to be uniform, 
and well-defined, um, and you have an experimental arm and a control arm, large trials with, with relatively, quote, unselected populations, um, there's a very high risk of failure of these studies, we know. Um, and responses like the uh, tubular sclerosis 1 gene in clear cell carcinoma will absolutely be overlooked. Um, and uh, in, we, we cannot make progress um, with any of the uh, infrequent genomic categories by this paradigm. Um, so that's not going to work. The FDA has taken this issue very seriously. And, you know, the FDA is an incredibly powerful organization to dictate policy um, and dictate our path forward. And Janet Woodcock um, and, Rick, and under her, Rick Pazder, have been the proponents of a new drug development strategy. There's a position paper out on this from them. And, and if you have an opportunity to hear Janet speak or even can go to some of her web talks, you hear that she is... Um, really been a breakthrough leader in this. And that is the concept that we take the biology first and that we take a so study cohort sorted according to molecular subtype, not necessarily within disease, but, but, um, but within molecular subtype. We define marker categories and that we use these marker categories to, as the starting place for our cohorts to test agents versus uh, drugs versus control arms. Now, part of this is we don't know, we, we, we know we're trying to sort and enrich populations. We don't know for sure that these drugs don't work in other, other aspects of the disease. So as you can see, it's developing the marker at the same time that you're developing the treatment. And I'll go into this a little bit more. So these are genomically driven trials by and large. They, allow smaller subsets because they theoretically enrich for response. We're not looking for the 10% the responders that we were in the past. They, by and large, utilize an adaptive design, learning as they go, and changing sample size based on, on real-time data. And they allow for more efficient biomarker development because you don't have to go validate a biomarker in this incredibly laborious pathway before you can actually use it. And they allow pharma, which is very important, to co-develop in vitro diagnostics to facilitate patient selection. So you develop the biomarker at the same time you develop the drug. The challenges that go along with moving targeted agents into clinical trials include, according to this paradigm, include what's the robustness of the science? We know we have very complex molecular signaling cascades, multiple mechanisms of resistance we have to deal with. Tumor heterogeneity is the bugaboo of many of the things that we are trying to accomplish. We do not have uniform populations, even if we know their molecular uh, type. And then there's also the very challenging issue of clinical trial feasibility. How are we going to find that less than 5% of clear cell carcinomas with the tubular sclerosis uh, mutation? What's the incidence and prevalence of the disease overall and the frequency of the biomarker within it? And then, which we're, we still have challenges with but are getting better and better with, is patient consent and access to tumor tissue. So many of these protocols require that patients we be biopsied again, even just to enter onto a screening protocol for which they may not eventually actually have a treatment arise. So here's an example of what I mean. 
adenocarcinoma of the lung. Um, this is the uh, heterogeneity of what we see in non-small cell lung cancer. And BRAF mutations in non-small cell lung cancer, 2% of the adenos. Under the old drug development model, if we were going to do a phase two study in, a, in BRAF V600E non-small cell lung cancer taking advanced disease, we would have to have over 11,000 subjects screened to enroll 23 patients. Absolutely impossible. If we wanted to then proceed to a randomized phase three, we'd have to have 20,000 subjects to identify 300 eligible patients. And at the pace that our clinical cooperatives work with this, it would take us about 14 years to complete this study. Unacceptable. We, we simply can't do that. There's not enough money or time. So how do we do this? And increasingly, we're turning to, under the guidance of the FDA, and very much forward thinking on the part of the FDA, to something we call master protocols. So under a master protocol, patients are screened for various markers and assigned to either individual trials or trial arms based on drugs that are most likely to be effective for their particular tumor type. They're enrolled from a large, centrally screened pool doing away with the need for patients to undergo multiple screenings to enter different trials. So everybody gets screened according to a panel that, if anything is found, would make them eligible for a number of different trials at the same time. And patients may have more clinical trial options as there is more efficient use of small biopsy specimens by centrally performing many assays at the same time. That's a very compelling reason for these large screening protocols. Like I said, one drawback is that sometimes we are finding we have to screen, we still have to screen very large populations, and it can be a challenge to ask patients to do that if we're looking for the 5 or 10 percent chance that we can actually get them on a study. That remains one of the challenges we're dealing with. There's different types of master protocols. A master pro definitions. A master protocol is, is the def definition of that is a clinical trial that permits multiple study arms and can test multiple different agents and regimens. And you can move in ineffective arms and out as the study develops just by simple study amendment. So one protocol, lots of different arms. You don't have to, it's, it's, a, it's a regulatory and IRB and institutional issue. You don't have to issue 10 different contracts to do 10 different arms of this study. It's a very much an efficiency method that we are starting to employ. They're very difficult to implement, though, because you can imagine they're incredibly complex. One study is like an entire portfolio of, of, uh, of disease trials. There's something called a basket trial. They test the effects of targeted agents in, in patients with the same genomic alterations but across a different variety of cancer types. I'll describe one of those in a minute. And then there's something called an umbrella trial. That's within a single disease, but you're testing a targeted agent on different genomic alterations in a single cancer type. So genomically driven master trials now are becoming increasingly common. This is a focus of um, a lot of pharma and research consortium development activity at present. They are by and large global because they're, we're looking for small targeted subsets. They have adaptive design. Those of you know that it means you treat five, ten patients, you look at the results, find out, and you know, you stop the study and you enrich the various treatment arms based on the a probability of success that you um, 
assessed based on real-time data. So we're getting smaller and takes smaller and smaller patient subsets, patient populations, to definitively answer the research question. Very big advance. There's a stepwise approach that I'll talk about in a minute, and an enrichment strategy. You're trying to select patients that you have specific reasons to believe they're going to be the responders. Seamless phase two, three design I'll describe in a minute. And most important, pharmaceutical partners have got to, we, we can't do these studies without them. And for pharmaceutical partners to be part of this, there has to be a potential marketing approval, which is why the FDA's um, sanctioning of this type of clinical trial development has been so powerful and transformative over the last two years. It's also why they need to be global, because pharma for marketing, everything now these days is, is done as global, global um, initiatives. By and large, the, getting our feet wet with the first of these, they've been um, for clinical indications of unmet need, aggressive disease, second line therapy, but we are about to launch our, uh, our well, what we have a master protocol currently underway in Alliance that is actually a phase three adjuvant trial. So they're definitely not all um, just in the, the more extreme um, populations that we are treating. So here's what these studies look like. Step one is just, do we have sufficient evidence to move on? And what you're doing in step one is you want to know, is your molecular marker, whatever it is, a KRAS mutation, BRAF V600E, whatever marker, does this biomarker, can it predict treatment response? Pure and simple. And can this def demonstrate a large effect in this enriched population that has that biomarker? So you do uh, profiling of the population by looking for whatever marker you think will work. And this is one that we're working on currently now for metastatic breast cancer. Not all these arms will go forward, but let's just say we, this was one of the early, um, early shots. And you can think we have markers for PI3 kinase, MAP kinase, et cetera based on specific markers, and then we treat them with either a specific drug or increasingly, certainly in metastatic breast cancer, with a targeted, uh, with a combination, drug plus chemo or even two, two targeted agents at the same time. Then there is, if that passes certain boundaries, we go to the second step. And the second step is a randomized phase two, three with, with an enrichment design. I'll give you another specific example in a minute, but basically, it then takes, it's, you've shown this marker. If you treat all patients with this marker, you get a great um, objective response, right? So you know the marker is good at enriching. Then you go and you take that marker population and you do a randomized phase two, um, moving on to a phase three if you meet the appropriate phase two endpoint, and you, and you move it on. And it, then it, it will go through to phase three if um, the, there's, you know, great efficacy demonstrated between the targeted therapy versus standard of care, and there's a very large effect. And drug pharma partners are allowed to achieve um, drug approval based on, accelerated drug approval based on this model. So genomically driven trials have a lot of challenges. Logistically, they are certainly not what we're used to um, in the traditional uh, large cooperative trials. There can be overlap in biomarker positivity. Um, we certainly have patients who have PI3 kinase mutations who also have uh, ERB mutations, for instance. 
Um, and the assessment of whether they, what the arm they belong in might be based on prevalence and not necessarily on what the true oncogenic driver is. We have lots of limitations in our knowledge on the funct functional significance of some molecular aberrations. I've already showed you that for, the, for my own patient. And it definitely requires a strategy for many diseases, such as metastatic breast cancer, which is where we're going next, to combine agents. And we have to, at the same time within these populations, optimize dose and safety. So that can be challenging. So now let me give you some specific examples um, so you can see how this is working. Um, I think some of you probably know about this one. This is a basket trial. The question for this basket trial across all different diseases is, what is the functional significance of a particular genomic alteration? And what do we mean by functional significance? We mean that the marker predicts response to a targeted therapeutic. And this is molecular analysis of therapy choice, otherwise known as NCI match. It's an umbrella protocol for multiple single-arm phase two trials, and each molecular subgroup is matched to a targeted agent. It looks like this. Patients have genomic se genetic sequencing. It's going to. Um, this is led by ECOG, one of the large uh, cooperative groups. They're going to sequence 3,000 patients centrally. If an actionable mutation defined by the study protocol is detected, then they get randomized to a study agent. As I said, this is just testing the marker now, not the drug. Um, they either have stable disease or a complete or partial response, or they develop, oops, sorry, or they develop progressive disease. If they have stable disease, they continue on the agent until progression. This is interesting. If they progress, then they, we'd look for more mutations, go back to the original data set and see if they have another mutation that can make them eligible again and recycle them as often as we can um, based on, uh, on what we have in, their muta in, the, in the protocol. If they have progressive disease, we do the same. And if there are no additional accidental mutations, then the patient is withdrawn from the study. And this right now is open to refractory, advanced solid tumors and lymphomas. We're looking for a very high objective response as proof of concept that the marker is truly enriching. So 5% uh, versus 25%. And um, in this definition, uh, a PFS difference, if, you're, if that's what's used as the endpoint of 15% versus 35% six-month PFS. It's a challenge, and it, you, can ta you can see some of the challenges that are inherent in doing this work. This particular study has mandated a fresh biopsy. There's a network of labs that can do genotyping that can be used for clinical care. It's got to be done in a CLIA environment. They're using targeted next-gen sequencing for the panel. It is non-randomized. Genes in the drugs are paired based on levels of evidence, and at the time that this slide was done, which is about a year ago, there were over 40 agents pledged to the NCI, which is coordinating this study based on um, um, randomized phase two data. So very large initiative. The study is not yet open. It should open in the next six months. Um, I know that many of you will be participating in this. Um, a really important groundbreaking initiative, but again, at the end of this, we will have a bunch of markers. We will not have new treatments out of this basket protocol. We'll have markers that can then go forward to new trials. So this is a different one. This one will give us new treatments. This is called LungMap. It's an umbrella trial, so it's within a defined disease. 
and multiple molecular subtypes. This is being coordinated by the Southwest Oncology Group for the second line treatment of advanced metastatic squamous cell cancer. Somatic genotyping is being done by Foundation Medicine. It's a phase 2-3 enrichment design, just like I described, compared to standard chemotherapy. And what it does is it's using Foundation Medicine next-gen sequencing platform in a CLIA environment. Um, there's classification rules have been developed so that, you know, the patients can be properly sorted into defined categories. And there's some other biomarkers that are important for, for MET activation. They're using an uh, immunohistochemistry. And there's a non-match arm for all others. And this is what LungMap looks like. It's a common screening platform. Um, with CLIO biomarker profiling um, by immunohistochemistry and by um, foundation medicine. The squamous cell cancers with PI3 kinase mutations go to one study arm where they get randomized to either an experimental agent versus chemotherapy. And you see the other arms listed here. There's a non-match arm that either randomized to standard chemotherapy or an anti-PDL1 drug. Um, with standard chemotherapy. Uh, and the endpoint is PFSOS. And upon meeting um, particular uh, boundaries, this is a path to drug approval for the pharma partners that have joined this effort. Um, this is what it looks like within each individual substudy. A patient comes in, they, get they find their mutation, they're eligible for a study, they get randomized. There's a phase two part um, that this is just for one of the substudies that requires 55 PFS events. And this is the interesting thing. Based on a high enough, passing a high enough bar at a phase two, because it's randomized, FDA has agreed to allow approval for accelerated approval based on phase two at 55 PFS events. This is what has drawn pharma to collaborate with us in an unprecedented fashion to do these genomic trials. If utility is established, it stops. If the bar is not quite high enough for accelerated approval, it goes on to phase three, but it's an enrichment design. And the final analysis of this subpopulation, I can't remember which one it is, required 256 OS events and 290 PFS events with potential for full approval. A far cry from the screening, you know, 11,000 patients to find the, the one subset. And this just looks, this shows you, makes the point, looks at the sample size for squamous cell carcinoma of the lung and why this is doable for the first time is this is the, the actual arms, the prevalence you see. PI3 kinase is only 9%. We, no way to do this as a single study. Um, the, that arm will, requires uh, 5,500 needed to screen, which is a doable number in a large, um, you know, North American consortium for patients with lung cancer. So it's doable, and the analysis is expected to take place once everything is up to steam within 72 months, which is not fast, but it's pretty, pretty reasonable considering what we would be dealing with if we didn't have this strategy. So um, this is what LungMap looks like, and that study hopefully will be available very soon here, um, here at Dartmouth. Um, let me just move on because, you know, I'm a surgeon. I'm a surgeon working in an uh, oncology world. I want to put in a little plug for the things that each of us can bring to the table and, and really help our patients and help move the field forward. Um, 
this is some development that I was very fortunate to be able to participate in um, back in early uh, 2001. Um, we there, it was identified that there was an activating CKIT mutation in metastatic gastrointestinal stromal tumors, and you know Brian Drucker's drug imatinib was very effective in patients with this disease. Really transformed the care of patients who walked in on death's door and walked out three days later and went back to work based on taking a pill. Um, but what we were able to show um, was that not all people responded well. The typical, you know, we have an activating CKIP mutation, but it made a difference which CKIP mutation you had. And patients with exon 11 mutations did very well, and patients with the other mutations didn't do so well. So, so we knew from the beginning that metastatic GIST was not going to be just one uniformly treated population. Uh, we began a collaboration between the surgeons, the research laboratory led by John Fletcher, um, the pathology team led by Chris Fletcher, and the drug development team led by George Dimitri, and started analyzing metastatic GIST patients. And what literally would happen for that first five years is we'd have this patient with metastatic disease, and um, they'd be put on a matinib, and all the tumors would shrink, but then one or two would start growing, and the others were all still quiet. So George would tell me, say to me or my partner, Chan Rao, go get me those two tumors that are growing. And oh, by the way, get me those three others that are not growing. We'd send them to the laboratory, and, and John would analyze them. And we found that they, all, they were all developing independent resistance mutations in PG, PDGFRA and, and CKIT. And so, you know, we were able to build this template. This was published in 2011. It's much larger now. But we were able to find that, you know, not only did we, we could we identify the specific mutations, we could look for the secondary mutations and then find agents that were particularly helpful in getting responses to the secondary mutations. So now this is, this is standard. Um, we, we really genotype everybody, not only at diagnosis, but now, now we genotype not only the resistant disease, but individual clones of the resistant disease, because that's going to tell us what they really need to be put on next, not just one drug. Lots of fun, very interesting, and daunting when you realize the complexity that tumor heterogeneity is going to throw, throw in there on us um, in this era of targeted drugs. And this is just, you know, from the publication describing this. This is a patient who had one of our patients with liver mats and you know, we could take out the Mets, and John is John and his team and Chris are very able to even even within an individual Met diagnose out the subclones that have different mutations with different responses to drug. So I'm just going to summarize here and and um, just a few kind of three to thirty thousand foot thoughts. Uh, it's really an incredibly exciting time to be doing what we're doing. Um, Medicine is evolving, and something I really haven't been able to describe well, um, but I can tell you we are in the drug development and treatment development world very interested in and going to be participating in is that advances in technology lead to greater data access and greater access to patients and results from patients through EHR that we can learn from even outside the context of clinical trials. We absolutely have to do that. We can gather comprehensive data from smaller samples so we can do more with an individual patient. 
and we really are trying to bring an information revolution to the patient at the molecular level. Technology is enabling drug development. Screen multiple targets in an individual patient. Triage patients to trials testing multiple agents, such as the umbrella studies. We have better definition of patients for treatment. So really enriching the people who are going to benefit, recognizing that all of these things are toxic, and also recognizing that our patients with metastatic disease don't have time to fool around and go to three different trials until they find the one that's going to work for them. They need the very best shot from the very beginning, and we have to figure out how to get that for them. More efficient drug development is, is here, and it, we're grateful for it, but we're also cognizant of ve how very difficult this is. Finally, we have to stay true to our core principles, and that is that really a mechanistic understanding of tumor biology, not looking behind us that much, is going to provide the optimal starting point for successful clinical translation. A mechanistic understanding now of relapse enables development of rational first line as well as secondary therapies, something we're thinking about more and more as we gather the data sets that allow us to design the trial arms. And finally, large morphologically defined tumor types require extensive reclassification throughout all stages of the patient's disease. And this integrates molecular finding and clinical outcome that leads to a new way of defining um, the biology of the patients that we care for. So with that, I would like to first acknowledge the members of the profile team, with which I have the great honor and challenge of trying to keep up with at uh, Dana-Farber and the Harvard Cancer Center. And you, you see them here. I won't name them all. And also to acknowledge Lou Stout of the NCI Genomics Group, who has also been a great friend and, um, and participant in the work that we're doing through the Alliance. Finally, um, in honor of David Kaner, it is just such a pleasure to be with you, to share this, and to invite you, um, anyone participating uh, in the Cancer Center in clinical medicine and clinical trials. The door is always open. We always want to hear from you. We welcome you to join this initiative. Thank you. So, Monica, thank you very much for that very provocative talk. The, uh, the Cancer Center would like to give you this gift as, a, a, um, as our, for our gratefulness for you coming and sharing all this uh, really interesting um, stuff with us. So it's, we're open. I think we can take a couple of questions for Dr. Bergnoli. Thank you so much for your talk. I know the NFR received an endowment to do sequencing. And I'm just wondering, because um, a lot of diseases are profiled by microarray analysis, and then you have different... You know, gene expression profiles that have high expression of some genes that can play a role as perhaps non-classical oncogenes, but still oncogenic. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, um, why, why are you incorporating microarray profiling? Because perhaps you can have a bit of a subtype that can then become a drug rather than just people that have mutations. So, um, sure. What we're doing is the tip of the iceberg, right? It's incredibly complex, and it's the tip of the iceberg. And so, sure, you know, there are many labs doing exactly what you described. There are commercial labs doing it. Um, the, in fact, the um, uh, blanking on the stuff, the ah. Uh, the Brigham recently acquired one of the large commercial expression profiling platforms and is now doing it, you know, as part of a research as part of a research initiative parallel to the profile, which is basically, you know, genes. Um, 
So yes, we're doing it. We're not offering it on an enterprise level because we don't have the, the first of all, we don't have the resources to be able to do it. And we don't have the quite level of actionable results from those, those type, oh, nanostring, sorry. Just got nanostring going. Um, we don't have the actionable results from those yet going that it made sense to launch it in the enterprise clinical setting. Um, but you're, you're exactly right. There's, there's a lot out there. And uh, the genes, like I showed you from the SAGE article, read the SAGE article, you come to the end of it, and you realize it's, there's so much there, and it's still just such a tiny piece. So you've got to walk before you can run, I guess. Anybody else? I have a question. The you know, our molecular tumor board um, only really reviews the cases that are sort of uncertain. And it sounded as if your tumor board uh, sort of encompasses the broader group. And it occurred to me that you know the tumor board can be a little uh, demoralizing because we always hear the negative. Well, we, we made a decision to do it because, you know, you, you see the team members here. It's just a big job, and we're all busy, and we all have things going on. So we like, you know, how you rotate on service every, every you know, couple times a year. Well, we rotate on the molecular tumor board. We did it for two reasons. We wanted to have enough people in the institution from the molecular pathology group and the oncology group that had the knowledge, you know, could be the core core knowledge holders um, and get, get some corporate knowledge going. It's the kind of decisions and strategies we were using because it's such a moving target. Um, so we wanted to have that. Our molecular tumor board is not, certainly doesn't hit every, we try to be a consult service. So somebody comes in from one of our outside institutions, gets the profile, goes back to their local doc and they have no clue what to do with it. So it's somebody you can call and get a consult service for what that might mean. And we wanna do that because we wanna funnel people to clinical trials if we possibly can. And we want them to know about actionable results if they're, if they're available. And then the, we don't know if this variant does anything or not. I mean, you know, you could spend your lifetime trying to chase the literature every week to show what comes through. You know, we do some basic things when we know the answer and then point people to the literature when we don't. So, uh, it's, you're right, it's demoralizing. Again, because there's so much to do and you've got to make a start somewhere and um, there's always somebody who's not quite satisfied with how much you can give them. <laughs> Mark. Um, thanks for a great talk. Thank you. I'm thinking that you know, it's more than a decade now we've been doing clinical trials on targeted agents, and we've done many tens of agents, maybe a hundred agents. And I think the major outcome is that single agent therapy is not going to be very helpful to patients. And you referred to this in many ways several times during the talk, the issues of tumor heterogeneity and the challenges around resistance and so forth. Um, the, sort of the first line of addressing that is going to be combination therapy, which mm -hmm. you also talked about. Mm -hmm. But do you think the alliance in particular, or do you think we need to look to other sources to begin pressing pharma to um, facilitate um, combination therapy? Because mm -hmm. all of the trials you talked about are really trials which we have to do and we have to get more drugs right. into the pharma. Right. But if we don't start looking for curative therapies, you know, we're going to be missing great opportunities. So the, we're, 
I'm going to Sangalan to Vienna on Wednesday to the Sangalan breast meetings, breast cancer meetings, and we're going to be launching an initiative in Sangalan called the Mastering Breast Cancer Initiative, which is going to be, I think, a master trial of, but it's, it's for metastatic breast cancer. And if you look at the diseases we've kind of chosen to de wrestle with this issue first, we think we've got a critical mass of pharma interest and compelling biology to try and, and also, you know, an unmet need for the disease in metastatic breast cancer to try to use that as our first platform for combination use. So it will be a master protocol for various arms of um, molecularly subsetted metastatic breast cancer. Um, probably first line, but maybe second line, you know, we don't, we're going to do whatever we can. And, um, and that we will have to have combinations in there and we will have to get pharma partners to the table who are going to do it. This is an international effort. It's very high priority, um, very high visibility. And, um, it's got some pretty heavy hitters behind it. Um, so we're optimistic we're going to be able to come out of that. Finding the dose is the hardest thing. Um, so we're going to have to do combination, you know, we're going to have to do phase 1B before we, as part of rolling into it. Um, but that's where we're headed with metastatic breast cancer. And we'll see how we, we'll see how that goes. I think pharma is ready for it in that subset of disease, but I'll know in a year from now. And, and you know, you're right. I mean, we need to go there with, with GIST. We need to go there. I mean, there's a lot of ones that are more obvious that, you know, we are. And what's holding us back, I think, is toxicity because there's just, it's just been really, we're still in series because of toxicity problems. I mean, you'd, you'd know more about that than I would, certainly. But that's what I think, where I think we've been. Yes. So um, where do you think this is going to play out in terms of the immunotherapy of so it, it seems like uh, it's almost like the opposite situation there. You turn on the immune system and let it pick the targets. So um, help me think about it. So, you know, immunotherapy is such a broad... Uh, my postdoc actually was in immunology, tumor immunology, a long time ago. And, um, you know, immunotherapy is so broad, you know, what we mean by that. And so I, I guess I can answer it a little bit with the PD-1 drugs. By the way, lung map, lung map now... You saw a non-match a match arm. Non-match arm was chemotherapy versus PD-1 chemotherapy. Now, all of as a result of the results that you'll hear a lot more about ASCO, but are also kind of out there, we're now going to see all of those standard treatment arms are going to have a PD-1 drug added to them. So, what we're seeing in immune blockade is very different. You know, very, it seems very complementary in certain subsets to the chemotherapies that we have and will will be just slotted in like any other drug. Um, I think that we'll develop CARs and other cellular-based immunotherapies a lot like we develop bone marrow transplantation within specialty centers um, in subsets of disease where we see early um, responses based on, you know, individual um, institutional experiences with that. Um, I guess I don't know, despite my very remote postdoc in the field, um, a better way to answer, uh, you know, how we're going to incorporate the complexities of other aspects of immune therapy in, in what we're doing. Um, 
certainly we'd like to see a lot more immune approaches in prevention, for instance. That would be fantastic. Okay. okay thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thank you again.